Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Yves Blouin concludes our series of messages on the Book of Acts, today looking at chapters 27 and 28. And now, here's Eve. Thank you uh, for the opening. That's always such a blessing. Um, some themes that I would like for us to focus on. Uh, look what you've done. We need to not let seeing the accuser hold us back in our spiritual life. God is in control. Chapter 27 and 28 continue on the theme that resistance to the gospel yet it continues to advance despite the opposition. God's providence. Spoiler alert, everyone is saved in the story. And God provides for them through the local population of Malta and even the Roman centurion. Following are some important verses to put things into context about Paul's life. For the sake of time, I won't read the verses, but suffice it to say that Paul was a nasty piece of work before his conversion. Paul was responsible for countless innocent deaths, persecutions, and imprisonment. Paul undoubtedly also regrets some of his actions after he was converted, such as fighting with Barnabas over Mark. In Acts 15.36-39, Paul didn't want to take him on further mission trips, but Barnabas strongly disagreed and they went their separate ways. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul had a change of heart about Mark. Later in prison, Paul requested that Timothy bring Mark with him as he was helpful for ministry. In the books of Acts, Satan continuously attacked Paul. Satan would have used the look-what-you've-done attacks with Paul. Paul's life and ministry would have been crippled if he had focused on regrets. The blood of the cross had covered his past sins, and his life reflected that. The Holy Spirit empowered him to participate in God's mighty works, unencumbered by regrets. He was being sanctified, being made more and more into the image of God. As we stumble in life, we need to come to the cross and ask for forgiveness from the one who is faithful to forgive and draw closer to him in thankfulness. This is drawing away from him in shame. Revelation 12.10 and Job 1.6-12 reminds us that Satan is the chief accuser. Throughout Acts, we see Paul falsely accused. Satan will not only bring to mind regrets, but also falsely accuse you. He will do whatever it takes to hurt your spiritual life and ministry. I became a Christian in my mid-twenties, but it wasn't until my late forties I could put behind me a regret that had haunted me for all those years. I lost a lot of sleep over it. It ate away at me. Think about all the wasted time I did. I've done foolish things all of my life, most, most of which I regret. I still do foolish, stupid, sinful things. And my expectations are that I will continue to do so until I die. My hope is that through the Holy Spirit's work in me, these are becoming less frequent and less severe. We're all being sanctified, but not sinless. I uh, I will stop to, if I can get to it quickly, a verse that 
Jim brought up this morning at the breaking of bread. And I will have to switch. Okay. So Paul speaking about himself. But I was given mercy so that in me, the worst of all sinners, Christ Jesus could show that he has patience without limit. That really struck a nerve with me. Because as much as our family and friends may not have enough patience to deal with us, uh, Christ does. Um, I hope you do realize that this is the church, a church of sinners. And sinners are all welcome. An anonymous writer said, church is for sinners like AA is for alcoholics. If you can't admit you're a sinner, you don't belong in church. If you're a sinner, church is exactly where you belong. That's where we go to help each other get into and stay in recovery, one day at a time. A key verse leading to the events of Acts 27 and 28 is Acts 23.11, after the Jewish leaders arrested Paul and they plotted to kill him. It says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, I don't think he'd be as much of good cheer if he knew what was coming. But Paul wanted to go to Rome to spread the gospel and encourage fellow believers. And God said, sure, I'll give you an all-inclusive cruise, but as a prisoner on a grain ship. Rome was the center of the world at that time. It was said that all roads led to Rome, and therefore strategic to the distribution of the gospel. He likely didn't plan or hope it would be as a prisoner. But throughout these two chapters, it is evident that he trusts that no matter the circumstances, God is in control and will see that he gets to Rome. Before being in prison two years in Caesarea, Paul spent about 20 years in three missionary journeys evangelizing the Mediterranean countries. Christianity had spread to Rome. As you can notice, I have some problems with some of these words. These slides show an overview of his travels. As, and this is his last journey. He was well-traveled. While putting these slides together, I thought, it's too bad he, that Paul didn't belong to a travel loyalty points or a rewards program. <laughs> but he did. He was loyal to God and went where God sent him. The Bible speaks of his reward being a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8 and the crown of life in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10. The Bible assures us that those who love Jesus will receive a crown of life. Last week we left off with Paul being under arrest for two years in Caesarea. He appealed to Caesar to avoid being ambushed and killed by the Jewish leaders, as Festus wanted to do them a favor and send him back to Jerusalem to be judged again. It had been two years since he heard from God that he would go to Rome. As Dave Hook indicated, Paul had first to testify about Jesus to all the existing leaders of that region, including the descendants of Herod the Great. In Acts 27, we switch from the preceding chapters, courtroom and political drama, to an action-packed story. It's about a great sea storm that Paul has to go through. The sea is representative of punishment, as in the flood, Exodus, Jonah, and the beast from the sea in Revelation. It is also representative of chaos and evil. No doubt Satan 
intended to thwart God's plan by killing Paul, or at least sinking the ship. Acts 27, 1-3. I won't read the text, the next two slides, but suffice it to say that Paul left Caesarea under the guard of a centurion and changed ship in Myra. A centurion had authority over a hundred soldiers. Throughout the story, we see that the centurion and Paul have mutual respect for each other. There, the, in, uh, in verse 6, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. This ship would likely be approximately 36 feet wide by about 140 feet long, with only one main sail. A large ship, but not very sophisticated, and relied on favorable winds and sea currents. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lazia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Man, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11.25-26, Paul indicates that he had been shipwrecked three times already. And if we can trust that this epistle was written before his trip to Rome, this would mean that he had plenty of experience being shipwrecked. Paul warned about sailing on. Instead, Julius listened to the boat owner and the captain. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means it could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. Fairhaven was a tiny city and port. It wasn't well protected during winter and had little to offer sailors for the winter month. It would have been similar to between given the choice of spending time in the winter in Musini or Ottawa. You know, which would you choose? Um, from November until March, sailors would not sail the Mediterranean Sea because of unfavorable sea condition. And given that the fast was over, it was now about mid-October. It was dangerously close to when they were supposed to stop sailing. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous head wind arose called Eurycladon. In the Mediterranean, each direction of wind has a name, as shown by this slide. Today, the Euryclidon is called the Gregale and basically indicates a wind coming from the northeast. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, and running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used the cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the surface sand, they struck sail uh, they struck sail and so were driven. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to... I already read that, sorry about that. The African sandbars were deadly and many ships were lost on them. 
The following slides show the overall trip to Rome. In our story, they lost, in, they were lost in the middle left of the map, right around here. In, a, in the, that part of the waters, that's the deepest part of the sea. You'll see that in another diagram later. It shows a relatively straight line, but undoubtedly it was anything but straight. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred disaster and loss. And I told you so. People love those. (laughs) And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. Indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God that will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Paul said that all would be saved. Having someone like Paul on board is good, because God will preserve him, so you get to be saved too. Once in a while, you get on a plane, and someone's first time flying, and they say, I was so afraid to get on that plane. But now that I see you're on it, I'm quite reassured that all will be well, because I know God's not finished with you. (laughs) We're nearing the end of the journey through the storm. Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took sounding and found it to be twenty fathoms, and when they had gone a little further, they took sounding again and found to be fifteen fathom. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern. These would be sea anchors, and uh, and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting down, out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and needed nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of uh, any of you. While seasick, eating is the last thing on your mind. This made me think of the sailor on the bridge, so seasick, and someone asked him if the captain had come up, to which he said, If I have swallowed him, he has. (laughs) In this section, it appears that Paul breaks bread or has communion with everyone, giving thanks to God. What an interesting situation, given the circumstances. Given thanks in whatever circumstances you find yourself. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of of them all. When he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And in all, 
we were 276 persons on the ship. And so when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the, the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay and with, uh, with a beach, unto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. For striking, but striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and their prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion wanted to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded that those who could swim should jump aboard, overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on board and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. If you're not out of breath by now, I am. Thanks, Joe. Sometimes our lives are tossed and we can't see the light in the storm. We pray for the day to come, for a break in the circumstances. We pray for unsafe family, members, for addicts, and for help. And it doesn't appear forthcoming. God isn't finished with our loved ones or us. Our stories are still being written. We may have been called by God to the mission field or another ministry. You then committed you followed God's lead, but things didn't turn out. That isn't a failure. God is more interested in our obedience than in the results. This is a very common story among missionaries. Corey Ten Boon said, When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. We all have a journey in this world. We can't trust the captain and enjoy the ride or be fearful. We will all complete our journey, but our enjoyment of this journey will depend on our trust in God. Billy Graham said, Comfort and prosperity have never enriched the world as much as adversity has. Adversity has no power over your choices. Do what God requests of you and let Him take care of the consequences. Helen Keller said, which touches on regrets, when one door of happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one which has been opened for us. Acts 28.1 Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. Fun fact, Malta is the tenth smallest country in the world and the fourth most densely populated. Malta is a tiny island. Malta also is, is, is a word for refuge. So they found refuge on the refuge island. That's kind of neat. Uh, the following slide shows some things of importance. The darker blue color, the deeper the sea is. And as you see, as I pointed out earlier, this part it's quite dark. And this is where they were lost for a long time. Some part of the map is Africa. And above Malta is the boot of Italy. You notice how far Malta is from land. 
They didn't have a clue where they were going since they had no stars at night to get their bearings on for 14 days. God took care of steering their ship to the tiny island of Malta. They could have otherwise have ended up in Africa or all dead. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome, because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But he took off the creature into the fire, shook off the creature into the fire, and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. Imagine Paul, after going through this storm <clears throat> and shipwreck ordeal, he goes to be helpful and collect firewood, and a poisonous snake latches onto his hand. He probably thought, when is this ever going to stop? I know I would. You've heard that adversity builds character, but I sometimes feels like saying to God, can we slow down even just a little bit? In Greek, trial and temptations are the same word. Satan may try to destroy God's plan and send you various trials to achieve this. But though God may permit it, God will see some good out of it, and his plans cannot be thwarted. In this storm, Satan meant to kill Paul, but Paul brought the gospel to Malta. Sometimes Satan will bring a large storm into our lives, but most of the time these sneaky little snakes come out of nowhere and bite us. These can take us off guard. Satan meant for the viper to kill Paul, but through this failed attempt, Paul gained respect and favor from the people of Malta and provided Paul with a large audience for the gospel. Paul didn't make a big deal about it. He just shook it off. When we're praying for our loved ones' salvations, sometimes our behavior through trials can be a stronger witness than any prosperity we may have. Trials are a friend, not of our flesh, but of our faith. The storms can reposition us. Paul was a captive at the story start and had little influence. By the end of the story, everyone, including the captain and the centurion, had the most respect for him. Moses and Joseph are example of those whose positions in life were changed by the, for the better by storms that came into their lives. We also see how people can be quite fickle. The soldiers wouldn't listen to Paul in Crete, but quickly learned to trust and listen to him in storms. Here, the local population first thinks that Paul is cursed, then he's a god. Always remember that though people may be fickle, God is always faithful and trustworthy. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and detained us courteously for three days. Not to single out the ladies here, but they tend to have more than their fair share of looking after guests. Imagine, ladies, 276 guests dropping in on you for three days. Some were prisoners and criminals. God bless Publius for his hospitality. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of fever and dysentery. Paul went in to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him 
and healed him. His father was healed with dysentery and a fever unique to the Isle of Malta that comes from goat milk in that region. So beware of malted milk. I didn't know how that one was going to go off. (laughs) Oh, boy. And it happened that the father of privilege lay, uh, I read that. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had disease also came and were healed. When Publius' dad was healed, many came to be healed. The word healed for this one is related to the word therapy, which is different from the one used for the father. The father's healing was a miraculous healing, while the general population's healings are referenced as medical healings. Just like a medical mission with Luke, the doctor, partnering with Paul, the miracle worker, to provide healing in Malta. Sometimes God uses us through miracles, and at other times through skills he's given us. Now I'm all lost. I won't read this slide, but in summary, Paul visited many believers on his way to Rome. Christians came roughly from a full day's journey to see Paul. What an encouragement that would have been for Paul. I'll come back to verse 16, but in verse 17 to 29, Paul then invites the local Jewish leaders. He tells them that he is in chains because of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel was that the Messiah had come and would come again, spiritual salvation through this Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. Some became believers, but it appears that most rejected the gospel. He told them that God was now sending this good news to the rest of the world. This caused a great dispute among the Jews, as up until now, access to the true God was only through them. The fact that there was a great dispute also highlights that some did believe in the gospel. C.S. Lewis said, There are two kinds of people, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those whom God say, All right then, have it your way. Which are you? We can ask why some Jews reject Jesus, but what about those of you today who haven't accepted Christ, who reject him today? What is your response? Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. During Paul's two years in Rome, he was under house arrest, changed to a palace guard. That's the equivalent of our modern-day angle bracelet, just a lot more inconvenient. Food for thought, though. Was Paul chained to the soldiers, or were the soldiers chained to Paul? The soldiers would rotate every four to six hours. This meant that Paul had both a captive audience and a new one several times daily. How many of those soldiers must have become believers? They were at a disadvantage, tied to a great evangelist from whom they couldn't escape. Imagine the conversation going something like this. Paul saying, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about, says the soldier. Well, now that you ask, and you can see where that would go. Maybe a soldier captivated by Paul's discussion, wanting more time with him, would tell his relief soldier, how about you take, I'll take your shift. You go be with your family. In Philippians, speaking of his first imprisonment, he starts his epistle by referring to the 
evangelization of the palace guard and ends his epistle with a reference to those he converted from Caesar's household. His most prolonged incarceration was the most significant period of Paul's impact on the world. He wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. Sometimes we may feel trapped by the circumstances of our lives, but these may be God's opportunities for us for growth or service now or in the future. John Bunyan, while in prison, wrote one of the greatest Christian stories, The Pilgrim's Progress. Many prisoners throughout the ages, including today, have used their situation for evangelization, such as Richard Wambrandt. Susanna Wesley had 19 children, of which only 10 survived, where her husband frequently absent during church business. Fire twice destroyed their home. It would be understandable if she felt trapped by this situation. She was the mother of Charles and John Wesley, which set England on fire for the Lord. My maternal grandmother had 18 children, grandchildren, of which 17 survived. She was a frail little woman under 5 feet and no more than 100 pounds, but strong in her faith. So much so that I named my firstborn after Beatrice. At her test, she had 136 direct descendants. We're called to honor God wherever he has called us to be. Though Paul is a central figure in Acts, Acts is not about Paul. It is about the early church and shows how the gospel spread. It's about God's control, providence, and faithfulness. The book of Acts, you'll note, ends without an ending. That is because the story continues. You and I are part of that story. For those of you curious about what happened to Paul, he was incarcerated for two years, released for one year by Nero, and then re-arrested and beheaded. After Nero's first meeting with Paul, Nero is said to have closed his heart further to the gospel and opened his mind to more evil, becoming an insane ruler. In conclusion, Paul's story is an excellent example of not letting your past define who you are today. That in Christ you are a new creation empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve God. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are redeemed. Your past only has the power you allow it to have over you. Consequences may be unavoidable, but our spiritual growth and happiness depend on focusing on our redemption and being faithful to God. Follow God's prompting in your life and let Him take care of the obstacles. God isn't finished with your story or those of your loved ones. I want to leave you with this final slide. We're all under construction. We thank you, Lord, that you gather us to Get encouraged by it to know that you have great plans for us. We may not know what they are. We just have to follow your lead, Lord. And we have to put the past behind us and look as to what you have for us in the coming. We thank you, Lord, and we ask you to bless your time this week. Keep us safe. Help us Get closer to you, Lord. In your precious name we ask, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.